0: voices
1: big issues
2: join us as we explore the real power of youth rising youth
0: rising
1: the youth rising podcast by ncs
0: hey i'm musin and this is youth rising by ncs where young people raise their voice to make a positive difference together we're the podcast for young people made by young people and in this season we've been exploring the topics that matter most to our generation Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about NCS Mixtape 22, which I've been involved with. It's inspired by What Matters To Us and is a collaboration between young people and three music artists, Saidu, Victoria Jane, and Emma Cannon, produced by Star One. Mixtape 22 is a soundtrack from and for our generation. It's available to stream now on the NCS YouTube channel. Check out the show notes for the link.
2: The Youth Rising podcast by NCS.
0: Now this week on the podcast, we're looking at what's next for the anti-racism movement. We're speaking to activist and influencer Munro Bergdorf, comedian Atif Nawaz, plus author and activist Patrick Hutchinson. Through activism, social media and a growing social consciousness, we are more aware than ever of all the types of racism that still exist. (laughs)
3: George Floyd died in Minneapolis after a police officer put a knee on his neck. For What do we
4: want? What do
5: we
6: want? To?
3: We need justice for George Floyd.
5: George Floyd's life mattered and Breonna Taylor's life mattered and Philando Castile's life mattered and Tamir Rice's life mattered. Life mattered. And so did so many other people whose names we know.
1: and Whose names we do not know. There's a lot of... Injustice happening My dad was called the N-word I was called the N-word And I heard it as a kid We, black people Get the feeling That people want our culture But they do not want us In other words You want my talent But you don't want me
0: You heard there The Duchess of Sussex Sky News reporting from 2020 Lizzo Beyonce And Monroe Bergdorf Who will be speaking to shortly The Youth Rising podcast by ncs yes, yes. but what's next for the anti-racism movement how do we continue to move forward with acceptance and equality and what can young people do to support each other and uphold inclusive values and actions cj spoke to activist influencer and model Monroe burgdorf about challenging internalized racism the reality of social media trends and what young people can do to support each other moving forward
6: So welcome to the Youth Rising podcast. So you speak very openly on Instagram about um, the Black Lives Matter movement and racial injustice as a whole. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter resurgence, do you think people are actually more aware of the way that racism affects people's lives? Or has there been sort of this rise of performative allyship and it's just like trendy now to be kind of woke?
1: I think that people are definitely aware, but I don't think that awareness is necessarily always directly akin to systemic change. And I think that that's the problem. I think people have always been aware that racism exists, but it's how many people are actually willing to do something about that. So Yes, I do feel that with everything that happened around the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent social media, oh, I don't really know what to call it. It was a moment where everybody was very, very aware, like what's happening with Ukraine at the moment, it's it's unavoidable. So the awareness is definitely there, but whether or not that's actually translating into a systemic change where we see corporations, institutions completely refigure to combat systemic racism which is the real issue not just individual instances that remains to be seen I do think it's gotten better and I I do think that it opened a lot of conversations but did it cure anything um no I think this is a long road ahead and I do think that a big portion of the battle was that people of colour were just not being allowed to speak about racism. It wasn't that people didn't know. It was that, you know, we weren't allowed to speak about it. And that's definitely changed.
6: How do you think we can make sure that supporting minority groups doesn't just remain a trend? And it is something that, even though it does feel like we are at the beginning of it, it's something that is a continuous journey with like an actual realised end goal.
1: I think a big issue of how we consume information these days is that we consume it in trends. We've become so used to consuming everything in trends um, because everything is so disposable, unfortunately. You know, even disasters disposable. Every single day there's a new disaster that's there to grab our attention and it is exhausting. So when we are presenting information on how to, you know, be good allies, how to, you know, combat racism. We need to make sure that we are providing that information in a sustainable way. So I think... What we really need to be doing is focusing our efforts outside of social media, where everything is consumed in trends. We need to make sure that we are providing educational resources and campaigning to have it entwined into the syllabus, into, you know, academia, that Black history isn't just being taught in the month of February or October, wherever you are in the world it's entwined into the fabric of society.
6: So talking about systemic racism then, many of our Black and Brown team members have shared experiences of people who don't experience racism insisting that racism doesn't exist or that systematic racism isn't real. Do you have any advice for listeners of things to say when faced with like these sort of arguments? I feel like in our society now, if you aren't blatantly called the N-word, for example then there's no such thing as racism. But it's so like interwoven. So what are your opinions on that?
1: I mean, I used to feel like I had to have a debate with everybody that challenges um, my lived experience. And the reality is, is that if somebody is positioning themselves to invalidate what you know to be true, you need to really question whether or not it's worth it because not everybody actually deserves your energy. Not everybody is even, you know, willing to receive the information that you give to them. So, whereas I used to feel like I'm gonna stand my ground and I'm gonna double down and, you know, show them, you know, you can't do that with everybody. It's a futile comment these days to say racism doesn't exist. There's no putting the cat back in the bag anymore. So that's a conscious decision that somebody's made to be ignorant so it's really down to you whether or not you want to indulge that or if you want to focus on being around people that see you that support you that will allow you to be who you are without you know saying silly things like that
6: (laughs) yeah no I completely agree with it. I feel like sometimes I call it like a humbling experience like you sometimes you just need to be humbled and just be told like this is a discussion for you but also there are so many other layers to this as well that you might have to take a back seat and allow other people to talk about their own experiences too. Mm. How do you balance feeling beautiful with an awareness of Eurocentric beauty standards as well, especially in the industry that you work in?
1: It's tough because when you work in fashion and beauty for so long, that has been um, the go-to And, um, you know, when you're a lighter skinned person as well, you know, I mean, the way that you can be lit, sometimes you can look much lighter. I find that because mixed race skin both absorbs and reflects the light, the way that we're lit on set, you can look extremely light. Um, So you can find yourself playing into like, not willingly, but you can be lit in a way that the finished product will end up playing into that fairer skinned ideal. So, I mean, for me personally, I look the way I want to look, but historically, a lot of the ways that I've been presented in terms of, you know, the skin tone that's come out in shoots has been beyond my control. I'm much more in control now. It's an ongoing conversation about, you know, black makeup artists on set and white makeup artists not knowing how to do black makeup you know, white um, hairstylists not being able to do black hair. So the whole industry is really geared towards putting Eurocentric beauty as a top level, rather than, you know, seeing all kinds of beauty on an even playing field. So there's that, I think that that is really where we really need to start as an industry is viewing all beauty as equal and that all people that are involved in the beauty industry and fashion industry need to know how to paint, style and light all skin tones of all races. And unfortunately at the moment it's not. So you said
6: that when you were, sometimes they've taken pictures of you and you're just like, well, have you like ever felt Awkward like bringing that up, but is that something that you see straight away, or do you see the finished products and you're just like, why would you publish this kind of thing?
1: I think in the beginning of my career, yes, because you know, I hadn't obviously been around that long, and to bring something up like that in say 2013, 12 when I started you know, we hadn't had any conversations about race. So it would be seen as an overstep for the model to comment on that, because, you know, that's the photographer's domain in those days. And now, you know, if a black model speaks up, then, you know, people are much more likely to hear her or or him or them, because, you know, people don't want to be cancelled. So I think that, you know, we've had those conversations. But yeah, I mean, like, if I think something now then I'll obviously say it because you know I've been around a, a hot minute and um, people are more likely to listen to me but um you know that's not always the case
6: how do you think we as black brown or mixed race people can confront and challenge some parts of internalized racism that we may have do you think
1: therapy i would advise everybody go to therapy i've just started again and i think it's an extremely freeing thing but make sure that your therapist shares your intersections. Because trying to unpack internalized racism with a white therapist just isn't gonna do it. I think internalized racist trauma is a really unique beast and it can come out in so many different ways. And a lot of the time it's really unconscious so i would recommend to get a therapist shop around don't you know stick around with the first therapist that you meet it's really important to find one that fits with you community as well plug into your community it doesn't need to be alcohol based or going out i mean it could be self-defense it could be you know pottery if that's your thing but like find your thing do it with your people and just plug into and be around people like yourselves who are feeling similar things to you because that way the shame is just taken away and it all just feeds back into a narrative of pride.
6: Yeah I agree I did that going into uni I started to surround myself more with people that were like literally like me and that's when i felt myself becoming more like myself like the person i was supposed to be which is like a more comforting feeling
1: you you realize also that like you know you're not the only one feeling these things but it's it's super important to confront them before they you know start to make you feel ashamed of who you are
6: i've also definitely tried to unpack with a white therapist before and it did not Did not go well. It was not the best experience.
1: Having to explain things that you shouldn't have to explain. It's not a capability thing. It's, you know, um, a base level understanding that you can build upon. And if you end up having to explain your lived experience, that should just be the foundation. And you can build upon that. You know, you shouldn't have to explain yourself to the nth degree to somebody who's actually there to help you.
6: How do you think we as young people could best support each other when it comes to the anti-racism movement?
1: I think that one thing that's definitely standing in our way is how we interact with each other online. I do think, you know, that we could be much more understanding of each other and our mistakes. I wouldn't say I'm anti cancel culture, period. I'm anti, you know, dragging each other. I'm anti pylons, shaming, that kind of thing. I do think that, you know, when it comes to people who are intentionally harmful, of course, I'm not I'm not gonna support their work. I'm not going to listen to their music. I mean, that kind of like boycott thing, I'm definitely down with. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to, you know, how we as like-minded people, get distracted from actually participating in progress because we're too busy fighting each other. I'm not for that. So I do think that, you know, we could be a lot kinder, more understanding to each other, understand that it's possible to change your mind, that just because somebody says something harmful does instantly mean that they have intended to cause harm. It could just be a mistake and they do happen. Everybody has the capacity to grow. I think that, you know, we need to be able to check each other and we also need to be willing to receive that as well. Of course, if somebody gets checked and they're not going to receive it and they're unwilling to um, acknowledge the harm that they've done, that's very different. But if somebody messes up, then we need to be able to have enough humility and humanity to understand that everybody messes up at some point. And surely, if we're not hoping to get people on side, and for everybody to grow out of what the world makes us. You know, the world that we live in is misogynistic, it's sexist, it's homophobic, Mm -hmm. it's anti-black, racist, and transphobic. That's what the world makes us. So anti-racist work and pro-gay, pro-anything, is really about opening people's minds. And if we're just gonna chastise people when their minds could be open, but maybe aren't yet, it's, I, don't, I just think it's counterproductive. So um, I think mm. context and mm. nuance is really important. Not everybody that messes up is an enemy.
6: Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really insightful and fruitful and I've loved speaking with you. It's been really fun. So thank you. So, Thanks thank
1: for thank having you. me.
0: Our Youth Rising team got together to discuss how things have changed when it comes to racism. What well, we did at know.
7: So, Sophie, the other day I was in lectures and I was just thinking the changes in response to racism hasn't really changed since 2020. I know we had, like, a lot of information and education regarding that in that period over lockdown where everyone was talking about it, but I don't know. I, I feel like things have died down and I don't really feel any changes has been made.
2: I understand where you're coming from because I feel like during 2020 when we had the tragic passing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protest, I feel like there was so much information circulating, so many helpful infographics on Instagram helping educate people and I feel like since then I've seen nothing and I feel like it was almost as if it was a bit of a trend and no one not took it seriously. But I feel like it was just another thing for people to share until the next trend came along.
7: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when we had those chain mail things when we were young and people would just send this huge paragraph. No one really read it. It was just like, pass it on. Kind of feels like that. People just picked up on this thing, acknowledged it and then moved on. And I feel like it's one of those things in life that you can't just move on from, especially when you personally experience it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you live with it, you potentially experience it day to day. And I think for a lot of people who maybe live in not ethically diverse communities don't understand that. And I know lots of people who don't. And when the Black Lives Matter protest started, they didn't understand what the big fuss was about and why everyone was talking about it. Because they didn't understand that racism is still very much a thing and it's not something that came and went.
7: Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm guilty of this. I could be educating myself more. I could be keeping up with the books, reading more. But um, it's, it's quite difficult to keep up. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves that we, that we always need to educate ourselves. There's always new things to learn, new things to understand.
2: Absolutely, especially people like me, who don't live with racism, we don't have to deal with it every day. When I hear all the stories, not stories, but people's real stories about how they have to live with and what they experience, I think, oh my God, Like as if it's still that bad. Um, And it sounds really awful saying it like that because obviously it's still that bad. But I think as someone who doesn't experience racism, I think, not personally, but I know a lot of people who think I shouldn't be bothered by it, it's not my problem. Racism isn't my problem, that's their problem. And that's definitely not a way to be thinking about it because it's everyone's problem at the end of the day.
7: I think being a bystander is just as bad as being the problem because you're contributing to the systems that are the problems. The term institutionalized racism, it it, it just rings so true, doesn't it? Because everything lies in the institution. It's not necessarily the people, but if you don't change the institutions, there's no changing the, the consequences or the actions or the effects on people. And it's really important that people understand that we need to change these systems in order to actually make any difference to people. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Lottie spoke to activist and Everyone Versus Racism author Patrick Hutchinson about carrying a counter-protester to safety, dubbing him as a hero, and how he responds to negativity.
5: Hi Patrick, it's really nice to meet you and welcome to the Youth Rising podcast.
3: Pleasure to meet you too Lottie.
5: Just going to start talking a little about you and what happened on the day of the protest and the decision you made to help that counter-protester.
3: We uh, had heard about the demonstrations and some of the uh, the far-right protesters were going to be there. And we were trying to get together, you know, a group of um, older, wiser, more experienced members of the community to sort of go down and oversee what was happening. And then um, on the day, I was actually tasked to babysit my two-year-old grandson. And so I wasn't going to make it. And then they basically pleaded with me um, and said, listen, like you're going to make six. There's only six of us if you come. If not, that's five. And obviously after that, I sort of felt compelled to go because I just felt like I'd be letting them down. And the last thing I wanted to do would be uh, sitting at home on uh, watching the news and, and seeing things happen that I could have uh, helped prevent. You know, we go down there, lots of frustrated young protesters and lots of uh, very drunk, totally disgraceful behaviour from the far right protesters because they spent a lot of the time mm-hmm. fighting with police. And for the most part, the police managed to keep them away from the BLM protesters. We'd heard monkey chants and abuse coming from them. And then they rushed over and then there was a bit of a altercation between BLM protesters and the uh, the far right guys. And then the far right guys, they run off uh, because they're outnumbered. And they leave one guy behind who's heavily intoxicated, looks concussed, he doesn't know where he is, stumbling around. This uh, Rastafarian guy sort of uh, holds him up. And I think his uh, plan was to walk him down the stairs over to the police who were further away sort of filming everything. And as he sort of descended on the stairs, you know, a lot of the protesters sort of caught wind what was happening. And then they sort of descended on them. There were a few other protesters also trying to help protect this guy, but they were just outnumbered. It was too many of them. And my friends and I, we saw this from uh, a little bit further away and we just rushed over there. You could see where the Rastafarian guy was, but you couldn't see where this guy was because he's obviously just fallen. And then only God knows what's happening to him below everybody. So we rush over, we start to pull people by the you know, the collars of their necks, dragging them out of the way, trying to find where this guy was going through a sea of people. We find him lying in the fetal position on the third step down. He's got a bit of blood coming from his head. And he doesn't know where he is. I looked over to where the police were and I thought, you know, if we stay here, we're all going to get trampled at some point. So I just thought the best thing to do would be to haul him up on my shoulders and to walk him over to the police. And and so that's what I did. And even whilst I'm walking with him, you can feel some of the blows sort of raining down. Not so much on me. Some of the blows are catching me, but they're not meant for me. And there was some jeers and some boos. But then as I managed to get him out of the main melee, it turned to like, you know, huge uh, cheers and claps. And one of the police officers said to me, you know, that's a good thing you've done there. And I set him down. And then about five minutes later, the paramedics were attending to him.
5: Wow, that's crazy. And I know it happened over such a long period of time, but I bet it felt to you like it was such a blur as well. It will always
3: be etched in my memory. And
5: obviously the picture went viral. But what was the general reaction kind of to that? Not just from people who were there, but on social media and more publicly.
3: About two hours after the event, we we're having something to eat and a uh, message from my sister pops up asking me is this you bruv and I said yeah I said where'd you get that she said this is on Reuters feed and um, she sent that to me and then I showed the guys and we were going oh my gosh like this is going viral and so I at the time I just thought man what would you do with a picture like this I thought I'm going to put it on my Instagram Uh, and I thought what would you write you know under a picture like this and some footage like this and I just coined a phrase at the time and I said "Uh, you know it's not black against white it's everybody against the racists (laughs)
6: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: And um, that sort of became uh, synonymous with me That happened on the Saturday, the Sunday Every single media outlet in this country and across the world Were calling me for interviews the next day And, and I literally had them all booked up in the, my local park Because obviously I didn't want no one coming to my house So, <laughs> And then you could see queues of media, you know, one after the other I think we started about six in the morning and, we, and I finished, you know, like early evening so, yeah, very crazy uh, 24 hours after that event.
5: As well as this, obviously, with the media reaction being so big, I was wondering if you'd experienced any kind of negativity from that or?
3: Yeah, I mean, there has been one and two negative comments. And even a few guys have stopped me in the street. But I've been able to, you know, counteract with a very valid argument. And uh, that argument was always that if you can't respect the fact that I've you know saved another human being's life, or even save the narrative of the, the BLM movement because that would have been destroyed the following day in the papers. Mm. You know, BLM thugs kill ex-police officer and grandfather of three because he is a grandfather and he is an ex-police officer. He's an ex-British transport police officer. So they would have gone to town on the BLM protesters and they would have just derailed the whole movement. So if you can't respect the fact that I saved him You know, respect the fact that I stopped, you know, four or five young black men potentially ending up behind bars. That one always uh, sinks in and they always seem to respect that fact if they can't respect anything else.
5: People have called you a hero in many different, you know, kind of settings. But this is something that maybe you're a bit uncomfortable with. We'd love to know why that is.
3: For me, it just shows it's a bit of a sorry indictment, really, on on the world that we're living in, that you do something like that and you have to be like, I guess... uh, dubbed a hero and it has to go viral and you should think that's the sort of thing that most human beings would do but I guess it's not and so that's why people have made such a fuss over it.
5: You've wrote a book, Everyone Versus Racism, um, yeah. love you to give a little synopsis of kind of the book and what it's about really.
3: Yes it starts off with myself, a young black boy growing up on a council estate in Battersea, raised by a single mother. I mean, it talks a little bit about my upbringing and some of the trials and tribulations I went through as a a young black boy in this country. You know, I did experience uh, lots of uh, racism growing up, but I didn't really see it as much then because I was just young and and it's what I was used to. But as I got older, then I realised what it was. So, yeah, it it touches on that. It touches on some of the harrowing statistics of what it means to be a black person in this world, uh, not just this country, the world over. I talk about um, what we can do as a society to come together and, um, you know, make things better and, and, and have a more of a level playing field for everybody. And yeah, that's generally the gist of it. And, I, and I'm hoping it's a thought provoking read. I don't come at people too hard because I know there are some people who maybe just need to sort of understand or walk in somebody else's shoes. And um, I'm hoping that those people, they do find a book thought provoking and it does um, make them understand the plight and why. This BLM movement is here and why we're constantly going on about racism, because racism is is here all the time around us uh, every single day of our lives. And that's why we're always going on about it, because we experience it almost every day in some shape or form. And it's hard to understand unless you are a person of colour And uh, maybe one way, if you can possibly try to understand that, is to read a book like mine.
5: And as you've mentioned BLM and kind of the anti-racist movement, what do you think is holding the anti-racist movement back from kind of making more
3: strident change? I think what's holding it back is uh, having allies in those places that matter, that count. Mm. I don't know if you know who Jane Norman is, but she's an amazing white woman um, from the States who's been an ally to... uh, you know anti-racism for many years but she really understands what it means to be uh, a black person she doesn't play around with her words and we need people like that but we need them in places that, that count we need them up you know running these corporations and where the, where the money is people that can make the decisions we need allies there in those places I- ignoring it is just that's not acceptable anymore
5: yeah definitely what do you think kind of the younger generation as a whole um bring to the movement at the moment mm-hmm.
3: We've set up this organisation called UKI, United to Change and Inspire. The name sort of comes from um, us united uh, on the day as um, more experienced members of the community, worried about our young protesters. Uh, We were united. We uh, changed the narrative, you know, in doing what we did. You know, we stopped those negative stereotypes. Of uh, black men, for example, that wear baseball caps and hoodies like I do all the time. You will never catch me without a baseball cap and a hoodie, unless I'm not allowed in to uh, <laughs> an event with one. You know, but we. But I'm just trying to. We're trying to change that those negative stereotypes of us, and then we're trying to inspire everybody else to be the change in the world that they want to see. You know, you don't stand by and watch things happen uh, that you know you have the ability to to change and stop. And so that's what United and Change to Inspire stands for. And we have four pillars. Um, we have education, mental health and well-being, reform, which means community reform, and um, the reform of the, the criminal justice system, and youth development. Under youth development and education, which are the pillars that I'm you know, uh, very passionate about, we are creating an alternative education provision. And what one of those is, it's like a school for the underprivileged children who have been ejected from mainstream school and what they tend to do is throw them into the pupil referral units. And then from there, it's almost like a one way ticket into becoming a young offender or in prison. And I think there's a statistic of some 70% of inmates in prison have come from a Peru at some stage. So there's a, a direct correlation there and we want to stop those young people from going into the uh, the PRU's and then going on to young offenders institutions. We have some really, some big uh, collaborations going on and some partnerships with some big companies and one of the schools we're collaborating with and have a partnership with is called ACS, which is uh, an international school up in Cobham. It has many sites and, uh, you know, some well-to-do people send their children there. So this school is not short of a few bob, but they are you know, actively pumping money into things that we're trying to do for more underprivileged children and having spent their time with one another, the underprivileged children with the more privileged children, so that these children one day will remember the times they spent. And um, hopefully, like I say, when they make it and become these big blue chip company owners, they will turn around and remember those more underprivileged children and have a lot more empathy towards people who are struggling and underprivileged
5: thank you so much for joining me i've really enjoyed kind of listening to everything that you're getting up to and um i will definitely be supporting all of it where i can on social media or whatever in the future and i hope everyone listening is too
3: so yeah thank you very much thank you lottie it's been a pleasure
0: how can we help
3: each week we're looking at
0: ways we can give back to ourselves and the community based on our episode topic Here at Youth Rising, we recommend... Show Racism the Red Card. This is the UK's leading anti-racism educational charity. We'd also recommend the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, which works with 13 to 30-year-olds in the UK from disadvantaged backgrounds. They aim to inspire and enable people to succeed in their career of choice. When it comes to mental health, we'd suggest Black Minds Matter, a non-profit organisation for people aged 13 to 25. They're passionate about change that will bring a more equal and just society for all. Lastly, check out Stand Against Racism and Inequality, a UK charity that provides support for victims of any type of hate crime, from racism and homophobia to sexism and ageism. As always, make sure you guys check out our show notes for more information about how we can all help. Sophie spoke to comedian and the creator of bbc Three's Muslimic, Atif Nawaz, about challenging racism in the media, and how he uses comedy to convey social issues.
2: Hi Atif, welcome to the Youth Rising Podcast.
4: My pleasure, thank you for having me.
2: So you created and starred in Muslimic on BBC3, which was a very successful and very funny comedy series. So why was it important to you to create a show that explores the experiences of British Pakistani people?
4: My co-creator, Ali Shalom, he's of British, uh, Bangladeshi origin. And, you know, we kind of talked about our experiences and, you know, we're both sort of comedians and creatives. And we wanted to create something which we thought spoke to our experiences. Now, like... This is what, 3 million plus uh, British Muslims in the UK. It's impossible to represent all of them in one show, but we felt like our perspective was quite valid as well. So that kind of young perspective, just the things that we go through on a day-to-day basis, you know, there were things that resonated with a lot of people, the airport security thing, it blows my mind that people still share it to this day, like three years later. And it's not just like sort of Muslims, it's people from all over the place. Oh, I felt like I was discriminated against in this airport and that happened to me when I was going here and everything. So it's quite nice to be able to kind of shine a light on an experience that doesn't always get that kind of platform.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what was the reaction like from your comedy from the Muslim community?
4: Overwhelmingly positive, to be honest with you. There weren't too many people who disliked it. You know, we were quite firm, Ali and I, about what we wanted to do and to make sure that we did it in a way that we felt comfortable, like we weren't letting anybody down, we weren't misrepresenting anything, we weren't being quote-unquote sellouts. I think just for that alone, we, we, people were really grateful and uh, they were kind of gutted we didn't do more of it really. But
2: And do you think it's important for comics to challenge social issues? And if so, why?
4: I think it's nice when comics challenge social issues. I like to see comedians strive to make a point I like comedy with a point. I think, yes, it's great that there's comedians out there who want to make a statement, but it's not an obligation by all means.
2: So what would you like someone that doesn't come from British Pakistani or Muslim background to take away from your comedy?
4: I I think i just like to share an experience, right? So, you know, it's it's three million people, but it's still a minority, right? And uh, I like the idea of, like, just exchanging information. Like, you know, I mean, there's a sketch in the show, which is about different forms of personal hygiene and like you know i just i think it's quite funny because there were so many people who never really considered that and there's loads of sort of inside jokes and i like the idea of making those inside jokes accessible to people so it's kind of like a cultural exchange and it doesn't like these jokes or these little colloquialisms or the intricacies they don't have to live in their own spaces they can be accessible and shared by people so i just like the idea of giving someone an insight into my world which is a bit uh, of a blessing and a curse, really. (laughs)
2: so how can we challenge racism and harmful stereotypes in the media and broadcasting
4: I think acknowledging them is the first thing and I've seen a lot of creatives starting to do this as well to look at their work retrospectively and think you know what I did this in like 1985 and uh, you know people loved it at the time but now that I think about it with everything we know with everything we're starting to learn and acknowledge this isn't acceptable anymore and I think that kind of Self-reflection is a huge thing. There's a lot of kind of finger pointing that happens when it comes to sort of racism and discrimination, like, oh, you are doing this and you're doing that and you should do this and you should do that. And, you know, sometimes I understand that. But 99% of the time, I think it's all about looking inward with the whole BLM kicking off. I, I looked at myself first. Have I ever been sort of have behaved in a divisive way? Have I ever been a passive to a bad situation have I just been a bystander and you know I was ashamed to realize that I had been a bystander in so many situations where you know morally should intervene but I feel more empowered to do that now and uh, I I hope like with everything that we're learning with all the art that's being put out there with the emphasis on being self-critical I think more and more people are going to have that sense of like you know we can't just be these things when things happen we have to feel empathy and equal empathy for everybody not just people who look like us
2: so how can young people best support each other when it comes to moving forward with anti-racism
4: in terms of anti-racism i think you know young people like i know it's such a cliche but young people are the future right so the thoughts have to change with them i feel like it's easier And not to sound ageist, but I think it's easier to change like a 16 year old's mind about something or inform them or educate them about something than it is an 85 year old who's had a long period of conditioning of thought and everything. Right. So I think young people have to acknowledge that responsibility, that the way the future of the world will think and that they are in charge of shaping the way the world behaves and thinks so that. And it's very easy to think, well, I'm just one person, but like you're part of a huge collective and you can be a part of this huge change that we're experiencing. You know, I think just taking that responsibility on themselves, thinking, "Okay, I'm going to be the best version of myself. I'm going to look at myself and improve my behaviour. I'm going to try and be a productive, positive, useful member of society. And hopefully that ripple effect will continue to resonate through people. And yeah, I think there's a huge role to play, but it's not as difficult. It's not this huge burden. It doesn't have to be this huge burden anyway, right? They can just be the change.
2: Thank you so much, Atif. My pleasure. Reading
0: list. Each week, we're getting our guests to recommend a book that has helped to educate and inspire them on our episode topic. This week's books
1: are. My book recommendation will be consumed by Aja Baba. Aja is doing incredible work in the fashion sustainability space, and her book draws really stark and clear. Parallels between colonialism and climate change, and the impact that the fashion industry is having on the world that we live in.
3: The book I would recommend is Akala's Natives because it gives you an insight without sugarcoating anything. It really shows some of the harrowing facts of what's like growing up in this country as a black Briton.
4: My book recommendation would be Why We Kneel, How We Rise, which is a book written by legendary cricketer and broadcaster, Michael Holding, who's a former West Indian cricketer. And he just goes through the timeline of racism in sport, but also offers this message of hope and what we need to do to eradicate racism from the sport. It's such a powerful read, I highly recommend it.
0: And here at the Youth Rising team, we recommend Rapunzelah or Don't Touch My Hair, a poetic coming-of-age story celebrating black identity by Ella McLeod It's available to pre-order now. Join us again next week as we discuss privacy in the 21st century. Remember to rate, review and follow Youth Rising wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out our socials at NCS on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat and YouTube. I'm Wilson Mahmood and thank you to CJ, Papadika, Lottie and Sophie for their help on this episode. And of course to our guests Munro, Patrick and Atif. This was a Something Else production for NCS where young people turn no you can't into no we
1: can. Young voices, big issues.
2: Join us as we explore the real power of Youth Rising. Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising.
1: The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS.